Thanks, Dom. Yeah, I was an athlete, by the way. Um, yeah, the, my name is Johnny. Pumped to be here with you guys. I feel like I know many of you. Uh, there are some definitely uh, new faces. Uh, Dom kind of talked about something that maybe I'll, I'll touch on. He said he, he knew Chubby Johnny. Um, my last name is Artavanis, and at Hume, they don't even try to, they don't even really try to pronounce it, so just call me Johnny Ardo. Um, that's kind of what our family's known as, the Ardos. But it's a Greek last name, and uh, my grandpa passed away a few years back, and my brother and I, Kyle, if you guys know Kyle, we went to Greece because we wanted to go to the island that Papa Ardo was born on. That's Kefalonia, just right off the coast of Greece. And there on the island of Kefalonia is one of the world's rarest flowers. I'm not really a botanist, uh, but I can appreciate some flowers, especially the Algerian iris. Um, what's special about the Algerian iris is when it blooms. It blooms in the winter. Uh, it is the definition of a late bloomer, much like your boy, Johnny. So, Dom, um, thanks for the, the shout out. I was a late bloomer, and to give you kind of an idea of the late blooming, uh, in high school, I think going into my senior year when I had Dom as a Bible teacher, I was 5'4". So I, I think I entered, and I was like 5'4", kind of a chubby guy, and uh, in between uh, each of my teeth, they called me Ritz, uh, because I, not because I liked Ritz crackers, but because I could put Ritz crackers in between each of my front teeth. A lot of massive gaps there. But not only that, I found out that they ha I had some like weird condition, as only I would have. I've kind of been under like anything unusual that would happen to someone. It's kind of like, yeah, that Johnny has that. Uh, I had like permanent adult or permanent baby teeth. I don't know if you guys have this thing. Um, ever heard of it? I think I went to the orthodontist, and the third of seven. Dad's a pastor, uh, so not a lot of money. I don't know if you know anything about ministry. So we went and uh, went to the orthodontist, told me I had like a permanent baby teeth, trying to get these things moved, you know, taken out. Because I guess above that, Tommy, you tell me if I'm wrong, uh, I had my adult teeth growing at an angle in my palate, and they were getting caught in the nerves. Um, so I'm, I'm like 17, 18 years old, going to my senior year of high school, and um, the surgery was like five grand. Um, and this would be, would be the beginning of a long road of surgeries. Um, and I remember I'm trying to figure out how am I going to pay for this guy? Johnny's washing wax wasn't necessarily a thriving business at that point. And uh, I figured out something that what's, what's often the most expensive part of a surgery is the anesthesia, um, not the surgery itself. And uh, I think it was like a $4,000 surgery. Started calling around with Patty. That's my mom. And I was like, hey, uh, how can, where can I get the surgery? And lo and behold, in one of the... Uh, darkest places on earth, Bakersfield, California. There was a place that would do the surgery without the anesthesia. So I'm like, with the anesthesia, it's 3,700 or whatever. Without the anesthesia, it's 800 bucks. And I was like, let's do it. So I walk, I go to, I go to Bakersfield with my mom. I walk in there and uh, in order to kind of get into the palate of a human, um, they don't cut it, they melt it. Uh, that's, that's what I found out is they took a mini blowtorch and, uh, at that point, the, the grit and determination that Dom mentioned was after I saw a world of pain. And uh, so they go in there, and they really just put like a numbing gel on it. And then my mom in the, is in there, and if you, know, if you know Mother Patty, she's just grabbing my hand as they uh, destroy me. And she, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me lie down, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow. Ah! Oh! You know, like, um, and I'm dying in there. And I can't open my mouth after the procedure. You know, they, they kind of melt open your palate. And uh, 
they numb it for days so that you don't get an infection when they, you open your mouth. So for five days, I have no idea what I even look like when I open my mouth. So I go to school and I'm kind of like, and uh, I was, I was oblivious to what I was missing. Um, and uh, a few days later, I opened it up, and it's kind of one of those moments when you realize that you have just a bunch of missing teeth. So to say I was a late bloomer is a fair assessment. Um, senior year of high school, I think I was like eight inches shorter, shorter than I am now, had like four missing teeth, and uh, was chubby. So, uh, so I got that going for me. Thank you, Dom. Uh, when people make fun of me, I just fully own it. And uh, I was oblivious to what I was missing in my mouth, uh, not my prime, definitely an Algerian iris myself. Um, but even tonight, Domin told me to talk about the gospel, and I think much like missing teeth that you don't know uh, really what's going on until you can open your mouth. Uh, when, when it comes to the gospel, uh, we can become so familiar with it or so unfamiliar to it that we become oblivious to uh, what we are missing and maybe what is unconversed or what is often conversed so much that we become potentially even apathetic and indifferent or even numb uh, to the truth that should bring us to our knees. And so this evening, uh, whether or not you've grown up in the church, and I know many of you have, and you know the truth, um, or whether or not you've never heard it for the first time, my heart is that we would all be equally thankful for what God has done for us in Christ, and uh, tonight would be a healthy reminder. Can I pray for us? God, we thank you so much uh, for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. God, we pray that we would not be oblivious to what we're missing in the gospel. God, that we would be reminded and refreshed um, and challenged by the words of Jesus Christ. You are not a God of ambiguity. You are a God of clarity. And so thank you for the timeless word of God that is just as relevant today as when you spoke the very words yourself 2,000 years ago. God, I pray that you would fill me with your spirit and fill us all as we look at your word. I pray this in your name and all God's people said, amen. So Don told you guys I work at Hume Lake Christian Camps and I get to interact with thousands of students every year. Um, many of those that have grown up in the church and had like a background much like myself and some of them that are like, hey guy, um, you wanna go to camp this week? And they're just so sick of their home life and have so many different elements or you know, going on that they're just like, sure, anything to get out of the situation I'm currently in. So you kind of have a, I like to use the words, a wide spectrum and the full gamut of students that come to camp. And in any environment where you're talking about the most precious truth in all the world in the gospel, I assume the same. And so at Hume Lake, what we're talking about this summer is what it means to be a follower of Christ. Uh, you and I live in a culture and in an era where, in America at least, it means culturally nothing to identify as a Christian. Um, two billion people on planet Earth say that they are a Christian, and much of that is maybe be just a theological affirmation of some truths, um, but it's often much different than the way that Jesus himself communicates the gospel. And so what is needed is to be reminded, and maybe for the first time, uh, how Jesus communicates at least the mentality and the mindset of a true Christ follower, and then at the end, uh, just briefly, talking about the response of someone that truly knows Christ, knows God for who he is, and consequently and transversely understands who we are in light of God's holiness. Um, I never want to jump the gun and just start uh, communicating um, the middle of a passage, and so I wanted to start from the very beginning that uh, what the Christian believes and what we believe and maybe what we need to be reminded of is, is Jesus uh, was a real man. And this is what I always want to remind students of, but I also have to remind my own heart of it because oftentimes we communicate the Bible and I think it's easy to creep into our own mentality that we're studying a fairy tale, like a fairy tale, a fable, a storybook, an epic, Beowulf, Gilgamesh, and Jesus are kind of all in the same thread. 
Uh, but Jesus was a real man. So regardless of what we do with the words of Jesus, he was a real man 2,000 years ago to walk the real streets and communicates this to a real audience. And so as we listen, we have to dial in um, to what he's saying. Our text tonight will be Luke 18. So if you guys have your Bibles, uh, let's turn to Luke 18. Actually, eh, scratch that. Go to Luke 15 first because I think it's important for us to understand uh, where he's coming from. Luke 15, and then I'm going to switch over to Luke 18. Are we there? Sweet. Um, it says, now in 15.1, now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes, verse 2 of 15, begin to grumble saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, the weight of the term tax collector is removed from us because if you grew up in the church, we sang a song that Zacchaeus was a wee little man. And, eh, huh? Man was he, where's Demo? He climbed up in. So our, our understanding of a tax collector is based on somewhat of like a story about a, a small man that climbs up in trees and he says, all right, I'll give you back your money. And our idea and concept of a tax collector who's gathering around Jesus is some guy that walks up with his buddies, Brad and Chad. Everyone kind of knows a mean guy named Chad. And so they walk up and he's like, hey, you owe me $15, give me 20 or I'll give you a swirly. And so this is like the concept we develop of a tax collector. They're, they're kind of like bullies. They're owed a certain amount, but kind of, they kind of take advantage and take a few extra dollars, stash it in their pockets. And then you go, oh, the evil. And so we kind of minimize the weight of what it means when a tax collector and a sinner are gathering around Jesus. But tax collectors, biblically, uh, there is no moral or cultural equivalent of who they are in a, in a biblical sense. They were the worst of the worst. And when they're listening to this and watching this, these are the people that are gathering around Jesus and the Pharisees, and we'll explain who they are in a moment, and many of you already know, are looking at Jesus going, how dare him? These are the trash of society. And here's how, here's kind of how it works. So at the time Jesus is alive, um, the, who's ruling the world is Rome. And we kind of get a little distracted and, and kind of think Rome is just this beautiful place because we've seen the movie Gladiator and assume that there's roses everywhere. Uh, but Rome rules from India to England. And so at the time, what's needed to rule an, an empire that large because there's no Roman Pentagon, uh, there is no such thing as CTU, Jack Bauer, or nuclear launch missiles. What you need in that sense is a massive, massive army. And so what is happening, uh, you have these guys that um, are going into cities and what they'll do, and there's even accounts of these Romans going into different cities uh, and in order to conquer the city, but also instill fear in everyone in the entire empire, they'll conquer it and then they'll take men, women, and children, they'll crucify them for 40 miles down the roads, stripping them naked so that everyone would know Rome is powerful, do not mess with Rome. And the way that these armies, they're the legions of Rome are being funded is by the very people, uh, is by people's cousins and neighbors and relatives. So when a man becomes a tax collector that was Jewish, it's not just viewed at as this guy is corrupt. It's viewed at as this man is single-handedly responsible for funding the murder of my loved ones. And so it's looked at, and there's in a way that caused people to be absolutely repulsed by hated tax collectors, hated these sinners. There is no term or there is no person in our culture or society that we could equate and go, it's kind of like these guys because you would be living next to someone that you viewed as enabling the murder of your family 
and it would be legal. They bought from Rome these franchises to be able to tax their neighbors. It's not like they're just stashing a few extra dollars. They're funding what in their mind is the murder and the regime of an evil and corrupt empire. But what's interesting is that these are the people that Jesus is hanging out with. These are the people that are coming to Jesus. He says uh, in verse two, it says, both the Pharisees and scribes began to grumble because not only is he hanging out with tax collectors, he's hanging out with sinners as well. This just includes everybody else on planet earth that is terrible. So this includes the prostitutes, the lepers, anybody that's diseased, because in the Pharisees' mind, anybody that has one of these diseases being punished by God for something that they've done or something that their family has done. So when you look at a leper and you see this later on in the gospel, they don't just view it as a guy that's unfortunately sick. They say, what happened to this man? What did he do? What did his parents do? Because he must be evil. And Jesus says, no, not necessarily, not necessarily. So when Jesus is hanging out with the lepers, it's not like, oh, this man's kind. He's hanging out with the sick. It's going, do you not understand who these people are to earn what they've done, that they're lepers because of something that their family has done. They're sinners. They're wicked. Do you know who the tax collectors are? They're wicked. And the Pharisees begin to grumble saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And for the next uh, chapter, and really until we get to Luke 18, Jesus is constantly deconstructing the people's opinion of who Jesus goes after. He doesn't hang out with the religious elite. He doesn't hang out with the people that are goody two-shoes necessarily. He's around people that are miserable in their own sin, the worst of the worst, really the trash of society, the trash of society. Um, And I think it's interesting because I think often we can have the type of mentality of the people that God goes after and the people that God does not go after. But all throughout the scripture and even later on when we look at Paul, Paul says he's the chief of sinners here in Matthew, in, or in Luke, we see that he's going after uh, these uh, tax collectors. And the Pharisees, you guys have grown up, maybe knowing the Pharisees, um, they were the goody two-shoes. They were the evangelical elite. Uh, they maybe had like none of this world stickers on their chariots, uh, good dudes, uh, state champions of sword drills, um, the whole shebang. They were, the, they were really good. Cut their hair, golden scissors, listen to only Hebrew choir music. Um, morally upright. Um, and they would have a certain interaction with God, and then everybody else was denied. They were, um, they were the end people. And it's important for us to understand that not only did they deny these, the riffraff of society, but they associated Jesus with Satan because they looked at the people Jesus was hanging out with and goes, if he's with Satan's people, then Jesus himself must be with Satan. And then we come to Luke 18. We come to Luke 18, and that's where we're at. Jesus says, um, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. So we have verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other tax collector. So Jesus is contrasting right away the most respected and the most despised. And they're both in the temple praying. The Pharisee stood in verse 11 and was praying to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I think we can kind of assume if you've grown up knowing what a Pharisee is, that this is automatically a bad guy. But I really don't know if there's anything that bad with this prayer. 
I don't know if, I mean, if you heard someone else standing up here and say, God, I thank you that I'm not like this. God, I thank you. This is a Christ-centered, we would say a God-centered theocentric prayer where he's putting the credit on God. So we're not even gonna find out what's wrong with this prayer until we get to the end of the story. But right away, when you hear Pharisee, you might go, oh, those guys, those, you know, like the Pharisees, they're the bad guys. That's not necessarily what's happening here. Jesus takes a God-centered prayer from the very beginning. And the guy's going, God, I thank you. And we always kind of communicate it maybe in a sarcastic, cocky way. He's thanking God. He's not saying, I'm not like these other guys. He's saying, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Uh, And I think this is something that maybe even we do. You know, I can grow up in a, in a family and be blessed by it and say, God, I thank you that I didn't end up like those other people. Don mentioned that I, go, I went to a private Christian school where he was a coach and a teacher. And I look at my private Christian school and the rarity and few, few and far between of the people that I even graduated with, walk with God, know God. Would you think it would be bad of me? I said, God, I thank you that I didn't end up like this guy and uh, I haven't fallen into sin. And you would just say, no, I'm just thanking God. He says, uh, I fast twice a week, so it gets a little religious here. I pay, t- I pay uh, tithes of all that I get. Um, and even, I mean, he gets a little shady, I guess, when he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like Stephanie. Uh, so I guess he gets a little bit cocky there, but he's saying like, this is a God-centered prayer. This is a God-centered prayer. He gets, uh, he kind of goes the extra mile. I fast twice a week. This isn't just like I attend church whenever it's open. I'm not, I'm in there every single time. He doesn't say he was like born in the church baptismal. He's like, I, uh, I'm always there. I do double of whatever the Lord requires. My time, my life, my resources, they're yours, God. Thank you for preventing me from the way that maybe even my evil heart would have gone. God, thank you so much that I didn't end up in this other way. It's not bad to see God's grace in your life. And this is even where I think the Pharisee goes. God preserved me from maybe what I would have been in my own sin, apart from my familial background, my heritage, my education. He sees this, recognizes this, and gives God thanks. This is not a bad prayer. I like this guy. This guy's probably on staff at a church. He probably leads a Bible study. He's probably the Awana leader. He's a good dude. He's a good dude. And so when we look at Pharisee, automatically assume the worst. This is a guy that is thanking God. He's thanking God. It says, but the tax collector, some distance away. Here's the other guy. He says, some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, the Pharisee surely doesn't think he's perfect. Um, so he says, God, I thank you. I'm not like doing all these bad things. And the tax collector comes. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't try to like morally prove himself in any ways. He says, uh, 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 God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, there's surely something that the tax collector had not done. So he might have been part of an evil regime, but it doesn't necessarily mean that he had single-handedly physically murdered someone. So he could have said, God, I thank you that I'm not an adulterer. We don't know if he was an adulterer. We just, he just says, I have nothing to say. God be merciful to me. A sinner is all he says. He brings nothing to the table morally except for his own sin. He has nothing to offer God. He has no expectation from God. I'm imagining he could probably think of something that he had not done, but all he does is simply cry out in a flood of tears far away says, so you can imagine that the Pharisee would have been right next to the temple. He just says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, as he beats his chest. A couple things to notice about this man's misery. I'm around a lot of miserable people every single week. 
Um, but what turns people in their misery to God is when they recognize that the reason for their misery is their sin. There is such thing as a worldly sorrow. Second Corinthians 7 talks about a worldly sorrow that just leads to more sorrow, but there's a godly sorrow that leads to true repentance. A true repentant heart is when you realize that the reason for your ministry or misery, not ministry, is your sin, is your sin. And so the reason anybody comes to Christ and anybody recognizes their need for him is not just because we're miserable, but because you are a sinner that needs to be saved. And Jesus is always highlighting this desperation. He's always highlighting that. In Luke 15, he says the parable of the sheep who's lost. And he goes, this sheep is obviously lost. It needs to be rescued. And then he goes back to the prodigal son. He says that this man is obviously lost. In verse 18 of Luke 15, he finds himself in the slop, in the pig pen. He's dying. He says, I am starving to death here. Jesus is always highlighting the mentality of someone that understands their need for the gospel is when you come to the point of desperation. It's coming to the point of desperation. And Jesus is driving something home here that the shared mentality of every single person who knows him and is an authentic follower of Jesus Christ is a realization of their misery before a holy God, their desperation, their hopelessness, and their lack of ability to do anything to curry the favor of a holy God. And Jesus is hammering this home and he's deconstructing the mentality of a, of a Pharisee who's going, I can earn it. God, I thank you that I'm not like this. He's constantly, constantly trying trying to deconstruct and reconstruct what he is after. What is he after? Now, the next sentence um, is about as terrifying a sentence as there is in the Bible. I believe it's probably the, the second most following Matthew 7, 22. It says, many, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and Jesus will tell them, I never knew you. And I think probably the second most terrifying verse in the Bible is the one that we will read now. I tell you, this man went to his house justified. There's a comma in my Bible. Um, and I think, in, I'm not a, one of the grammar police, but I believe this comma uh, is the most terrifying comma in the world because if there was a period there, this man goes home justified. We could all hold hands tonight, sing Kumbaya, God saves even the worst of the worst. But it says, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Let me tell you what's wrong with the Pharisee's prayer, but before I do so, I want to tell you a little bit about Halloween. Now, if you guys uh, celebrate Halloween, and honestly, I guess before the influence of Rick Jackson on my family, uh, we, we looked at Halloween as Satan's birthday party. Um, and so when I was growing up in Chicago, we were in Wheaton, um, there would be trick-or-treaters. I mean, anything really dark, uh, we were never allowed to be a part of, especially Satan's birthday. But like we had to fast forward Ursula and Little Mermaid, Jafar on Aladdin. But for some reason, my favorite movie since I was like six years old was The Last of the Mohicans. So that was okay. So was Braveheart, but not Jafar. But uh, we were, uh, we would, you know, Halloween's a huge deal uh, here and pretty much everywhere. Uh, we never went trick-or-treating. I did not dress up for Halloween until uh, people talk about the rebellion from like their background. I think I was 20 years old. I dressed up as Larry Bird. So I go, I'm celebrating Halloween. I'm like, trick-or-treat, trick-or-treat, you know, Celtics 3P, whatever. Um, and, uh, but growing up, we definitely didn't trick-or-treat. Uh, instead, we would pass out Bible tracts as kids would uh, come and knock on the doors. So be like, hey, kids, how's the candy? Sweet. I mean, I'm a chubby kid at this time, you know, so I want the candy. Dom already told you. So I, hey, knock, knock, knock. 
Hey kids, how's the Reese's Pieces? Um, here's this. Here's this track. Hope you guys have a great night. They had opened the track, and the first page says, "If you were to die today and stand before a holy God, and He said, Why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say to Him?" I mean, like you got, you got like an eight-year-old kid who's just like, "If you were to die today, yeah, you know, like." And so the guys slow, the kids slowly back up from uh, Sweet Patty. Um, if you were to die today, now, biblically, I don't think that we're ever going to have to give an answer, but it does raise an interesting question to the mentality of how we think we can approach God. So let's apply that same question. I think it became popular in the evangelism explosion like 30 years ago. If you were to die today and stand before a holy God, and he asked you, why should I let you into my heaven? How would you respond? So let's take that and apply that to our story now. Let's say uh, the Pharisee, the tax collector, they're leaving the temple. Ben-Hur comes by with a rogue chariot, runs them both over, and they're dead. And they stand before a holy God. And uh, the Pharisee walks in. He's like, what's up, man? You know, he walks in and he goes, why should I let you in? I don't think necessarily. I think this might surprise us. I think he would say, because of your grace, God. Because I was not an adulterer. I was not a liar. I was not a thief. I was not a murderer. I tithed. I gave. I attended. I served. I was faithful. I loved people. because I did not do this, I did not do this, I did not do this. And contrastly, I did this, 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 and this. Thank you, God. And God looks at him and says, get out. Get out. We always talk about how the Pharisees maybe always took the credit. I don't think that's what's happening here. I think that the Pharisee probably viewed it as his contribution and God's grace were a joint effort in accomplishing the work of salvation. That it was a tandem effort between him and God. Not that even that, it's not that he thanked God for what he did. It's that he thought what he did could save him and give him right standing before a holy God. And so he misinterpreted and sadly totally missed the point of the gospel. He thought he could earn his favor to before a holy God, and we see that in Galatians, if righteousness could be earned by works of the law, then Christ died for nothing, for nothing. He stands before a holy God. He says, I didn't do this, I didn't do this. And Jesus says, I never knew you. I never knew you. There is a common mindset and a shared mentality by every single person that is in heaven right now. No one there thinks that they deserve to be there. They don't think that they deserve to be there. And you look at the other guy, he doesn't walk in, he's dragged in. He's dragged in and um, he's like, no, no, no. His feet are kind of hanging like this. And he says, why should I let you into my heaven is the question that we're gonna apply here. And the guy goes, why, why? No reason, no reason at all. No reason, no reason at all. But, But by some unfathomable display of mercy and grace, I plead I plead the mercy in the blood of Jesus Christ. I plead the blood of Jesus Christ. I plead the blood of Jesus Christ by nothing I've ever done, by nothing I've ever confessed, by nothing that I, I've ever bought or, or faithfulness or service or nothing I could have ever done. This is my plea. This is the only reason for something. I would have no idea why, but that's my only hope. That's my only hope is the blood of Christ, that he would look at me and adopt me and show his love and mercy and grace to me, even though I, I, I never forget about it, forget about it. And Jesus would look at him and say, come on in, come on in. And at this, 
the entire audience listening to Jesus would have been irate. They would have been outraged. And what Jesus constantly does is produce gasping moments for his audience. Luke 15, the prodigal, he says that the father loves this son. He doesn't, the prodigal comes, he says he realizes his shame. He returns to his father and says, I'm, I'm gonna go and say, hire me as one of your servants. I'm not worthy to be treated as your son. Hire me as your slave. I'll just, I'll sleep in the pig, you know, in the barn. Just let me do that. And we see this over and over again. Jesus says the same thing. He says, you know, the, the, Pharisee, or the, the prodigal starts to give Jesus his little, or the king, uh, what am I saying here? The prodigal starts to give the father his little spiel. He says, God, you know, like, I'm not worthy to be called your son anymore, father. I've sinned against you and against heaven. It is so great. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Doesn't even get to the end of his rehearsed spiel. And the father looks at him and says, shut up, shut up. Robe, ring, ribeye, rent collective. Start the party, start the party. He doesn't even wait till the speech gets out because he looks at him and welcomes him and loves the sinner. Jesus loves the sinner, but which shows like not everyone's sinned that bad. Not everyone's a tax collector. Not all of us are funding murders, nor are all of us in the pig pen with prostitutes, it says, of the prodigal, that this guy lived life and his sin out to the max. Not all of us are that bad, but it shows that Jesus' grace extends that far. But the mentality that you and I have if we're in Christ is the same as the prodigal. And here's how I grew up thinking, and I think what is sad amongst a lot of evangelical Christians and a lot of the students I interact with, we affirm theologically sin. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So that I can say theologically, I sent to that idea, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, no one's perfect, but we have to get out of the Western mindset in that regard. Everyone's a sinner, no one's perfect. I'm only human is one of the most popular bios on social media right now. I have issues or I'm only human. And so we look at sin in a diminished way in comparison with the holy God because we compare our sin to other people's sin who compare themselves, who compare their sin to other people's sins. But that's not the recognition of our sin that Jesus calls us to have biblically. It is only when we recognize that we're not much different than the prodigal, than the tax collector, that Jesus only saves people who recognize that they need to be saved. He only makes people alive who recognize they're dead. And in my own heart, I think I grew up going, yeah, of course, I'm a sinner, but if God chooses who to save, then it sure makes sense that he would save me. After all, look at me. Look at me. I'm not that bad. I'm a good guy. I think I even love God's word as a nine-year-old. Started doing like a read the Bible in a year thing at nine years old. And I go, well, of course, if he has mercy on whom he has mercy, then it sure makes sense that he has mercy on me. And I don't, I don't really know when I became a, a follower of Jesus Christ, but I think it was in this very passage that I realized I have nothing to offer God. I have nothing to offer him. It's not a joint venture between the best I could do and I tip my hat to God as he gives me the final push into heaven it's not a joint venture. It's not a confluence of our work together and that he kind of takes any element of me that's still unredeemed and then makes me whole. I don't even, we use that phrase a lot. He takes what's damaged and broken and he makes it whole. Jesus has never done that with anybody. He takes what is dead and makes them alive. 
And we look at the prodigal and go, yeah, that's someone else. You know, Jesus can save only the prodigal. Praise God. I don't know how often we view ourselves as the prodigal. Our love for God is dictated by an understanding of his love. We love because he first loved us. But our understanding of God's love will always be diminished until we understand our sin for what it really is. That we're in the pig pen. That we are the tax collector. And yet we become so self-righteous at times and we can look at and say, God, I thank you. I'm not like then. Even hopefully God saves that guy. Our sin is just as great. Our sin is just as great to think that we can go hand in hand with God and accomplish our own redemption. And I... uh, I think that this is one of the, the most dangerous elements of growing up Christian and we become numb to what we are missing because even the Pharisee could have affirmed the grace of God and growing up, I would have affirmed grace and faith, but in my own mind, I thought it was hand in hand. Jesus and I are tag teaming my redemption and Jesus looks at those types of people in Matthew 7 and says, depart from me, I never knew you. The people that he says that to are not the bad people. It's many, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons? Did we not prophesy in your name? The ones whom Jesus says that to are good church people. They're not the pagans. They're people in our own midst. There is no more terrifying verse in the Bible than Jesus looking at someone and going, hey, you thought it was a tag team with me. Not the case. Get out. And that's the, that's the desperate plea of even of the scriptures and of Paul saying, we could do nothing, we can do nothing. And it's only until we realize that we are just helpless and hopeless and desperate. And the reason for our misery and our desperation is because of our own sin, that Jesus can look at us in our true brokenness and not a worldly sorrow that just remorse and feels bad, a truly repentant and broken heart, realizing that what we need is not spring cleaning from the sin that's in our life. And I think that's my, that was my mentality, is that I need to be forgiven. I need to be cleansed. There's some cobwebs in the corner. No, even, even us need to be made alive. That's what Jesus has done for us. And so until we remind ourselves that it's not that, we, it's not that we just theologically affirm it, you and I were just as dead as the prodigal. There's, you can't take two dead people and say one is more dead than the other. Ephesians 2, we were all dead. You don't look at two dead people and go, yeah, yeah, Bob, that guy's more dead. You go, no, they're both dead. There's no life in them. And there was no life in either you or me. And so when we look at the Bible, Jesus makes those people alive. He makes those people alive. And until we understand that, um, we are in a very dangerous position. Matthew 21 says, he tells the Pharisees, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes will, will, welcome in, will be welcomed into the kingdom of God before you because they realize they have nothing to offer. They realize they have nothing to offer. And maybe we theologically affirm nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I cling. But in our own minds, we can be condemning of maybe other people. And maybe we, we lose the gratitude that should be evident amongst every single Christ follower that Jesus made us alive, that we were desperate and hopeless, but Christ being rich in mercy because of his love made us alive. Our problem before God is very simple, and maybe you, you know this. God is holy and we are not, never have been. No one is holy, not even one. We don't have an ounce of holiness apart from him. 
our deeds, not just our deeds, our best deeds of righteousness are filthy rags before God. And we think about this, and maybe you know the verse and memorized it, but that is the truth. Our best deeds of righteousness before holy God are filthy rags. So he doesn't look at us and go, nice. He looks at us as just as desperate and in need of his own righteousness as before. And if we are trusting in ourselves at all, we stand by ourselves because Jesus, it says that he opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He welcomes the humble. He welcomes the humble. The only one who ever possessed the righteousness that you and I need is Jesus. The guest list to heaven is one. If we're not clothed in the righteousness of Christ, we aren't in. Jesus not only died for us, he lives for us so that he could not only take away our sin, but clothe us with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And even for a pastor's kid, I never, uh, and you guys know me and you know my family, um, our hearts don't need to be brushed up. Um, it requires a miracle and a transformation of our heart for us to be alive. Your sin, my sin, my sin as a relatively good, respected uh, family kid needed the slaughtering of the Son of God. That's, that's the weight of our sin. And so when Paul calls himself the chief of sinners, it's both from an understanding of God's holiness and who he is in light of that, but it's also showing further again how far God's grace extends. You line your sin up to Paul's, Paul's definitely wins. He murdered Christians. I think that's about as bad as it gets. Um, we sing a song uh, routinely that I love, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. And in that, in that second uh, verse, it says, Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. And uh, I think I, I loved that song uh, growing up, but I think I missed the point of it for many, many years. And I think that when you grow up knowing the truth and you become a familiar with different parts of the story, but then putting yourself in the story as far as what happened when Jesus died. It says that Jesus was taken to be crucified and a prisoner was released. You guys remember the guy's name? Barabbas. And uh, it said, give us Barabbas, give us Barabbas. I've been wondering, I think for about a year, if you think Barabbas went to watch Jesus crucified. Um, it says that the disciples fled in fear and in shame. Uh, I just wonder, I... I I can't help but think he had to have gone, that, the, that he was released, Jesus was taken, and Jesus was crucified. And you just wonder if Barabbas is there just kind of watching up on a hill, looking at Jesus being slaughtered, going, that cross was meant for me. That cross was meant for me. I am alive right now because that man is there dying in the place that was meant for me. And you wonder, did he just go back to his normal life? I don't know. But the reality for every single Christ follower is we look at the cross of Jesus Christ and we go, that cross was meant for me. Jesus took the full weight of the wrath of God for our sin, put it upon his shoulders. God declares him legally guilty of your sin and treats him as such. And both of the parties that Jesus represented on the cross, being man and God, it says the Father turns his face away, and so do the people that Jesus himself is representing. 
Both parties turned their face away as Jesus bears our cross and was killed for us. When we say, behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders, is because the understanding we have of our sin must be to the point of the tax collector, the sinner, and the prodigal to understand that Jesus had to die for us. And we can't theologically affirm that and go, yeah, Jesus died for my sin. Do you understand that he had to die for our sin? But not just everyone's sin. It says in Ephesians 1 that before he ever said Milky Way, Mount Everest, and any of these other things, Jesus chose us in him before the foundation of the world so that long before he ever said, let there be light, Jesus knew that thousands of years later on a tree in Israel, he would be killed for those whom he would save by name. By name, he would know us. And he knew that before he created anything. And this is the story of the gospel that you and I have a shared mentality with Barabbas. That cross was meant for me, but Jesus didn't bear a cross so that we would never have to bear one at all. Because there's some assumptions made in the text that when we understand what God has done for us in Christ, that he can remove our sin, that the tax collector can cry out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, yes, my grace, my mercy, I love my love. Now there's a chain attached to the weight of every Christ follower because Jesus didn't bear our cross so that we would never have to bear one ourselves. He goes as the brother before us to show us the life that a believer now lives. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This is the story of every Christ follower. And when Isaiah says, it's not just a coffee cup verse that says, here I am, send me. Look at the verse before that. It says that when he realizes that his sin is taken away and his guilt is atoned for, his only response is, here I am, send me. That when we understand what God has done for us in the gospel and the love of Christ and the work of the cross, our only response is a life sold out for Jesus Christ is a life sold out for Jesus Christ. And so what the fuel is behind a love for God's people, a burden for the lost, is understanding the plight of an unbeliever, not being merely separation. It's not a hole in their heart. It's not the donut, man. It's eternal hell and the wrath of God. And so when we understand the plight of an unbeliever, but God's love and provision in Jesus Christ, and that he saved us as broken and as wretched as we are, our only response is go, here I am, send me. My life is yours, God. And we see this, with a tax collector in the, in the scriptures. The man who wrote the very first book of the New Testament, Matthew, was the very type of man that we look at in this passage, a tax collector. Jesus says, come follow me. And he did, left everything to follow Jesus. And some years later, after Jesus died, you know the story of what happened in Matthew, to Matthew? It's interesting because it shows that he understood the weight of what God has done. And he goes before us as an example of our response it says that Matthew preached the gospel in Parthia and in Ethiopia, and 25 years later after Jesus was killed, uh, was disemboweled by a harlbeard, which is a combination of a battle axe and a spear. He gave his life because Jesus had given his life for us. And that's the message of the gospel, and that's the response of a Christ follower. I, uh, I'm thankful, you know, that God reveals to us not only our sin, but also our self-righteousness. And um, I'm thankful God revealed that to me and continues to expose that in me. Uh, and the Puritans wrote a lot about repenting not only of their sin, but of the things that they thought maybe gave them a reliance upon their own works to earn favor before God. 
God doesn't share his glory with anyone. And so even though we might theologically affirm some truths, our lives might be dependent upon things that we've done. We rob God of his glory. We rob the gospel of its distinctive nature. And ultimately in the process, we diminish our love for Christ because we have to realize we can bring nothing. I, uh, I think just lastly this, I, uh, I consider Grace Church of the Valley my home church. I'm so thankful for it, and so many men and women in here that I respect. And uh, I think I'm around probably like 700 churches a year now. Um, and you guys got to realize you, you're part of the 1% of the 1%. Uh, but we can have the mentality of the Pharisee, both individually, but also corporately, that we can say, God, I thank you. I'm not like other churches who have Saturday night services. And, you know, like, and we can make up whatever who don't expose it like we do. There's a humility that marks the churches that God is working in and through. And whenever we thank God, and we can thank him and affirm him, but I hope it produces a humility of what God is doing even in your church. Because even in Revelation, we see that the church of Ephesus condemned false doctrine of the Nicolaitans, but they had lost their love for Christ in the process. And my, my uh, challenge and encouragement is I love this church, but these things are also what we have to be mindful of. And the ultimate antidote to pride is reminding us individually and corporately of the gospel and what he's done for us, for what he's done for us. And our whole lives are his, for his kingdom and for his service and for his glory. I, uh, I love you guys. I'm praying just a moment, and I've been giving instruction that you guys are going to break up into just your table groups, I think, and begin to just process and dialogue uh, maybe things in your life that you take credit for, or maybe ways that you're robbing God of his glory. Maybe that might be self-righteousness. Maybe that you might be the tax collector that thinks you're beyond the scope of God's grace. Um, God's grace is too powerful over your sin, um, and he saves the worst. Um, he also saves the self-righteous. And so regardless of whatever spectrum we fall in tonight, there is reason to remind ourselves of the gospel and maybe communicate it um, to someone at your table for the first time. So let me pray, and then you guys are going to talk amongst yourself for a few minutes, and I think uh, someone will come up and close. God, we thank you uh, for the gospel of Jesus Christ, what we desperately need. Um, as a reminder, God, but even the gospel is not a, our conversion is not a flu shot. And so, God, what we need every single day is a reminder of the truth that we are desperate before you. We are helpless. We don't bring anything to the table. And yet we sing these things all the time. And sometimes the truth in that gets so familiar to us that our own pride starts to creep in. God, I... Uh, even as we sang tonight in grace alone, I worked my fingers down to the bone. Nothing for sin could ever atone. God, we can never work hard enough by our own self-will and determination to curry the favor of a holy God. It says that if righteousness could be earned by works of the law, then Christ died for nothing. You've given us your spirit, God. You save us from far spectrums. And so, God, whether we're lost in the far country or if we're lost at home in the church, God, would you move through your spirit and bring people to a humility before you. God, you oppose the proud, but give grace to the humble. God, thank you for saving so many here that can stand before you confidently, not because of piety, devotion, attendance, familial background, or heritage, but because you justify us and give us right standing 
by the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We love you, God, and pray this in your name. Amen.